As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. World War I is history's first global war. Millions of soldiers from over a hundred nations fought and died, and billions were affected. It shattered the old world order and created a new one, and its outcome was decided by its battles, which were the largest that had ever been seen, and introduced terrifying new weapons. Welcome to the Key Battles of World War I podcast, where we dive deep into the battles that decided the fate of humanity. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine. To be proud, her boys in line. Over there. All right, everyone. That was the first line of the anthem that rollicked America and got us into the Great War. I am Scott Rank, and this is the beginning of a new series, Key Battles in World War One. I. I am joined by my August and esteemed colleague, James Early. James, how are you doing? I'm doing just great. I'm excited to be working with you again. I don't think we could top it from that beginning. So, you know, I, we've basically covered the war if we get that nailed down. So should we just wrap it up right now? <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> well, uh, if you've been around on the ride with James and I, we have done multiple of these series. We've done key battles of the Civil War. We've done key battles of the Revolutionary War and also a series presidential fight club, something I'm particularly proud of. But we're going to be biting off a lot more. The battles in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War If we compare them to a world historical scale, they're really not that big, especially the Revolutionary War. Civil War, yes, it's the largest conflict America ever had. The Great War is something 
else altogether. And we have a lot of angles to look at. This is, as we have said, a world war. It involves a lot of people, involves millions of people. And the good news is James has brought the incredible precise amount of research to this like he has with the other series. James is the author of a book, two scholarly articles. He's also an adjunct professor at San Jacinto College. Is Are they using the correct Spanish pronunciation? No, or is it they don't. They use the Texas pronunciation, San Jacinto. All right. So there it is. So before we get into all this, I figure it's worth talking about why we wanted to do this. Because for a lot of Americans, World War One doesn't register. They can't really explain why it happened. You're sort of a historical oddball, or not in the historical community, but in the general community, you're kind of an oddball if you're into it. So what got you into it, James, and why'd you want to dig into World War One? What got me into it originally was when I was in high school, I got into playing historical board games. And one of the games that I played a lot, I mean, I played this thing, I don't know, almost every weekend for a while, was a game called Diplomacy. And Diplomacy takes place right before World War One, and there's seven great powers. You have seven players, and everybody plays one of the powers, and and it's just a lot of fun. It, there's no die rolling. It's all about negotiation. You negotiate with other players, and you make deals, and you make alliances against other players, and you keep going militarily, attacking and defending until you're down to just one person, or at least until one person dominates the continent. So that was a lot of fun. And, and that got me into reading about World War One, and especially about the lead up to World War One, the things we're going to talk about in the first couple of episodes. I've always found those fascinating. I've read many books about those. Uh, I'm not saying I know everything because you never could. It's extremely complicated and we're going to do our best to simplify it. Just hit the highlights. But it's a fascinating time, the early 1900s in Europe. And I really didn't know that much about the battles themselves, the nuts and bolts of the, you know, who attacked who and how long did it last and how many were killed and what weapons were used. But that's what I, I wanted to learn about. So that's why I wanted to do this series, because I knew if I committed to doing a series on this, I would be forced to learn the material. And then I've learned a ton over the last several months. I've been researching it for about five months now. Yeah, I've seen the notes, people, so don't worry, you're in capable hands. And uh, just as an aside on that board game, you were playing those sort of in the dark ages of board games before the renaissance of games like Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride, where uh, at one point all you had was Candyland or board games that were based on knockoffs of TV shows like Laverne and Shirley, the game, Happy Days, the game. It's either that or hyper-intense uh, strategic games on the Civil War or World War One or Europe during the Fin de Sil. So that's another important point, that, uh, time period in history there. So it's a really interesting conflict. And I think for me, what got me interested is when I was living in Turkey, because in Turkey, they really don't care about World War II, not in the way Americans do, because Turkey didn't have an active part in that. They didn't even commit to one side or another until the end. But for World War I, when you talk to people there, it's as if it happened yesterday. It's like going to the Deep South and talking about the Civil War. Even though there's no one alive who was there, definitely no one alive who fought, it led to the creation of the nation state of Turkey. The battle itself was directly responsible for its borders. And even for Turks themselves, the way they think they were treated or mistreated by other nations still leads to a feeling of suspicion and resentment to other people around them. And then the other thing, too, I think that's interesting for World War I is 
when we talk about history, a phrase I like is that history is a foreign country. And that's more true the further back in history you get. World War II, I think a lot of people like it in America because there's still a lot of it that seems familiar. Your grandfather, maybe you know someone from two or three generations back who fought in it. You can see movies from that period. Some of them are still very interesting and still very funny. You see it's different. So if the past is a foreign country, World War II isn't quite foreign. It's sort of like going from one state to another than the United States. I'm in Kansas City, James in Texas, and I don't think there's much we don't understand about one another except maybe barbecue preferences. Uh, that's anything that sticks out or any other things. Yeah. But once you get to World War I, it feels like you're crossing over the border into a foreign country where the accent is different. These institutions that existed in the Middle Ages are dying, but they're still there in the pre-World War I period with aristocratic classes and barons and noblemen, where being a king or queen still meant something in a way it doesn't in the 21st century. Yeah, colored uniforms and people riding on horseback sword a right. lot, those kind of things. Cal yeah, cavalry, French uniforms still inspired by the Napoleonic era. You had colonies, empires. There's not universal suffrage. Uh, women can't vote in the United States. Other classes of people can't vote. There's just something that seems different and foreign. And World War I is such a watershed in global history that it altered things in ways that few other events can possibly do. So it's just earth shattering in ways. It's, it's absolutely titanic. And we can only scratch the surface here, but we'll do our best. So James, start us off. Where do we possibly begin with World War I? Well, let's set the scene by examining Europe in 1914. As Scott mentioned Europe in 1914 wasn't all that radically different from Europe in 1814 or 1854 or 1880, for example. And it's going to be radically different by four years later. Europe in 1918 or 1919 is a, almost a different world from pre-war Europe. So going back a little, now we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the history leading up to World War One. I. I mean, where do you stop? How, how far do you go back? There's a joke of historians say, if I'm going to talk about World War One, okay, we've got to talk about the Franco-Prussian War, <laughs> which means we've got to talk about Napoleon, which means we've got to talk about Louis the Fourteenth, which you know, which means you know, you should, where do you stop? So let's go to 120 million years ago with the Pangean supercontinent splitting in two. I think that's a good starting place. Where it all started, exactly. Yeah. So that's where we're going to start tonight. No, I'm just kidding. But um, we're going to start very quickly in 1815, but go super fast to 1914. So, you know, you had the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s, ending in 1815. And since that time, there had been several regional conflicts in Europe, but there had not been a general war. In other words, there had not been a war that involved all of the major European powers. Between 1815 and 1914, the most powerful nations of Europe had coexisted in an arrangement called the balance of power. The balance of power ruled the roost for a hundred years. And it was very important, very sacred to the European powers. Under this arrangement, the major powers of Europe kept each other's power in check. So if one nation, for example, seemed to be growing too powerful, the others would act to stop this and preserve the balance. The Crimean War is a classic example of that. Russia seemed to be getting a little too big for its britches and wanting to expand down into the Balkans and possibly into the uh, Anatolia. And so Fr France and Britain sent them a message by attacking them and defeating them. So, so 
it's not like there was perfect peace, but there just weren't any major conflagrations that we'd seen, for example, during the Napoleonic period and during the Seven Years' War and, and the Thirty Years' War before that and other times. So by 1914, Europe was dominated by several major powers, most of which were actual, actually multinational empires. They were not simple nation states. They had many, many nations, many nations, many languages within them. But these powers called themselves, very humbly, the great powers. <laughs> you know, very modest. And there were really five great powers. And there were a couple others that were, I'd say, great power wannabes. They were wanting to move up in the world and become great powers, but they didn't quite cut it. They didn't have the military and economic power of the others. So what we're going to do in this first episode is we're going to set the stage by going around Europe and taking a look at each of these powers one by one. In a way, we're introducing the players in the drama, like it's an ancient Greek play and we're introducing the characters at the beginning. A Russian novel where they list all 1,000 <laughs> characters, each of whom have five names. <laughs> No, it's not going to be that complicated. And we'll pull in a lot of these other strands as we're introducing each of these different great powers, because understanding their relations with the other powers is really what starts World War I, so that's good to understand. And um, one other just uh, quick thing I'll mention before you get into the first power, part of what made this a world war and not just a European war the way the Napoleonic Wars were is from the 19th century up until 1914, and historians refer to this as the long 19th century from the end of the French Revolution up until World War I. It's sort of this extended period that's bookended by two earth-shattering events. In the long 19th century, one of the most dominant forms of government was colonialism. It's not acceptable today, but it was perfectly acceptable in the past to find a uh, underdeveloped part of the globe or a place where people's technology was asymmetrically much weaker than yours and you would conquer them. Maybe you would extract resources. Maybe you would develop it there, but you would essentially rule over it. So many people from many other continents are being pulled into this, whether they want to or not. And um, something like 80 or 90% of the globe is ruled directly or indirectly by some European or Western power at this point. So yeah, it's these nations, but man, everyone is roped in whether they want to or not. Absolutely. And these powers, with one exception of the five great ones, were ancient empires who had been around for centuries, and they'd been dealing with each other for a long time. They were not like uh, people who just sat down in a class together for the first time and met. They've had a long history with each other, and alliances have changed and, and flipped and flopped. And Anyway, you'll see what happens. It's going to be good. We'll start with the East. Scott and my main uh, areas of scholarship, at least originally, were in the East, right, Scott? So let's start in the East. We're going to start with Russia. Russia, of course, was an empire, and it was ruled by the Romanov dynasty, and it had been for 300 years. It was an absolute monarchy ruled by Tsar Nicholas II. We'll talk some about Tsar Nicholas. Tsar Nicholas was, he was not the most talented and gifted ruler. When he first became czar, he protested that he wasn't ready. He hadn't really been trained very well. His father died unexpectedly, relatively young, and the czar, and Nicholas was very young when he took power, and he 
just wasn't quite prepared. He hadn't finished czar school yet, Scott. <laughs> he didn't he didn't get his degree yet. But anyway, Russia was of all the great powers the by far the most populous. It had about 164 million people and it was also the largest land-wise just as it is today. Uh, it had an enormous amount of land. It stretched from Poland in the west all the way to the Pacific Ocean in the east. Had a great amount of natural resources. Economically, it lagged behind the rest of Europe in agricultural and industrial development, but it was not a backwater. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Russia was a backwater, like almost like it was a third world country or something, but it definitely was not. It had the fourth largest economy in the world, and the economy was growing. And this really concerned Germany, but more on that later. So Russia was moving up in the world, so to speak. The problem is, is that even though it was the fourth largest economy in the world, the other one, two, and three were also right next to it, at least relatively close in Europe. All right. Russia had been recently defeated in the Russo-Japanese War, which took place in 1904 to 1905. Very humiliating, crushing defeat uh, uh, against a nation that the Russians thought were a bunch of barbarians. They thought they were uh, primitive, but the Japanese showed them otherwise. Russia had also, and, and partly as a result of their loss in the Russo-Japanese War, they had suffered through a revolution in 1905. And this very nearly brought down the monarchy, but it didn't, and it was brutally crushed by the government. Uh, Tsar Nicholas didn't mess around. If you mess with him, he's going to mess with you even more. <laughs> now, Russia had a significant revolutionary movement. There was a lot of discontent. There were so many poor people. Uh, there, you didn't have serfs anymore. That had been abolished uh, several decades earlier, but you still had many, many poor farmers, peasants, workers, and the movement towards socialism and revolution was brewing right under the surface. In fact, several of the leaders had been exiled. People we'll meet later, like Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky and, and Joseph Stalin and, and other people like that were uh, were forced to live outside of the country. They'll be back. Anyway, uh, the Russian Empire ruled over many non-Russian ethnic groups. There was no Poland at the time. Poland was had been divided up by Russia and Germany and Austria a long time ago before this. So within the Russian Empire, you had Poles. You also had Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Finns. You had uh, Armenians, Georgians, Azeri. You had uh, Kazakhs. You know, just all so many different people groups, and many of them are going to play a role in toward the end of the war. Now Russia. Russia was an Orthodox Christian nation, as most people know, and it was Slavic, meaning it spoke a Slavic language, had a Slavic culture similar to that of the Poles and the Serbs and the Czechs and um, the Slovaks and, and, and the Croats and people like that. So, But Russia had a special feeling towards the Serbs and the Bulgarians, too. I forgot about them. Um, they saw themselves, especially the Serbs, they saw themselves as the patron of other Slavic nations. Right. And um, one other thing, too, I want to mention, um, this applies to Russia, but it really applies to these other empires that we're going to discuss. You might hear these different ethnic groups in Russia, Poles and Latvians, and think, wait, I know that there's a nation of Poland and Latvia and Lithuania today, but it's within Russia? What's going on there? Well, 
this period up to World War One, empires still exist. Where an empire, it's a power that exerts power over a smaller group of people. So Imperial Russia might rule, but sheltered under it, there's a little house under this big tent that's Latvia and another house that's Poland. And in some ways, the idea of empires is starting to wear out. Um, Ever since the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the idea of a nation state is growing, where you're not a subject of the emperor, you are a citizen instead. You You have voting rights. You're bound together by some common identity. Maybe that's all speaking the same language, like in France, that was the idea of French national identity. Maybe it's based on ethnic relations. You're all ethnically connected in Serbia. That would be an idea, for example. Sometimes these feelings of nationalism can spread across nations. So like what James is talking about with pan-Slavism, where Russia sees itself as a protector of other Slavic peoples, Bulgaria and Serbia. Turkey had this too. There was the idea of pan-Turkism, that a Turk was connected to other Turkic peoples, which lived in Central Asia, the Tajiks, the Turkmen, the Kazakhs. I'm sorry, Tajiks aren't Turkmen, they're Persian. My bad people, so embarrassing. Anyway, just want to mention that, that when we part, this is what kicks off World War II, where there are people who want national status, they want their own nation, but they don't have one. They don't want to be ruled by someone who doesn't speak their own language and doesn't get their custom. So just wanted to clear that point up because we're going to dig into this a lot more. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, let's look at another empire. So, James, what do you think about Austria-Hungary? All right, we're going to move slightly west and a little bit south 
to talk about Austria-Hungary. It's always interesting, Scott, when I teach uh, on World War One. My students, they know what Russia is, they know what France is, they know what Great Britain is, they know what Germany is, but they don't know what Austria-Hungary is. They've never heard of it. So uh, I have to explain for a little while. Austria-Hungary was a very old empire, ancient by this time, even older than the Russian Empire, at least older than the Romanov dynasty, going back way into the Middle Ages. It was ruled by the House of Habsburg, the emperor in 1914 was Franz Joseph, or Franz Joseph, if you want to be technical, but I'm just going to call him Joseph. And he had ruled since 1848, which means if you do the math, that's 66 years, almost 70 years he was on the throne. He obviously became emperor at a very, very young age, and now he was very old. He was well into his 80s, and he wasn't really absolute. He, he certainly didn't have absolute power like Nicholas did in Russia, but he had some power. He was not just a figurehead like the King of England, for example. Now, Austria-Hungary, like Russia, had many, many ethnic groups, although in a much, much smaller space. And it depends on where you read and how you count them, somewhere between 12 and 17. You know, you had everything from Poles to Austrians, who are really Germans, but just living in a different country, Hungarians, Romanians, you had Romani or Gypsies, you had Serbs and Croats and Bosnians and Macedonians and just and all, some Albanians, and there were even Greeks. They had to publish all their publications in at least a dozen languages, or as many as 16, perhaps. So it was an ethnic, not a melting pot, because they lived somewhat interspersed, but they all had certain regions that they dominated in, like the Czechs dominated in Bohemia. And this created tension between Austria and Serbia because there was a large Serb minority within Bosnia. And we'll talk more about that in the next episode. How did Bosnia become part of Austria-Hungary? Well, you'll just have to wait <laughs> But if you don't already know. The population of Austria-Hungary was 53 million, which is, if you do the math, less than a third of Russia. And it had been reorganized into a dual monarchy. It, it was originally the Habsburg Empire or just the Austrian Empire, and the Austrians ruled over Hungary directly. But then, starting in 1866, after they were defeated in a war by Prussia, and if you don't know what Prussia is, we'll get into that a little later. Prussia was the progenitor to the German state, if you will. And after Prussia defeated Austria-Hungary in 1866, then the nation was or the empire was restructured so that hungary gained a lot of autonomy and shared rule with the austrians scott want you want to expand on that a little bit yeah so hungary tried to gain independence in 1848 with a revolution and this was part of a way to square that circle where it's has some level of autonomy. It largely controlled domestic affairs, but was subordinate to Austria when it came to foreign policy. So just appreciate people. It's hard to rule an empire. Um, this is worse than Articles of Confederation era America, where different states are practically different nations. These are basically different nations. Um, these are people who have completely different languages, completely different traditions. Like James said, how do you publish a newspaper when there's 16 languages? How do you have a national school system? You don't. How do you give orders in the army? <laughs> you know, right. That's going to be a big problem, as we will see. Yeah, and people might not necessarily feel all that loyal to an emperor who has a completely different background than him. So 
Hard to rule an empire, people, way harder than a nation state. And this tug of war between Austria and Hungary that might not feel completely close to each other is part of that dynamic. So, and are they concerned about the Balkans, James, or they just don't care at all? Very concerned about the Balkans. They had already expanded quite a bit into the Balkans when they annexed Bosnia. But uh, they were very worried about Serbia. They were worried about Romania. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But it was, a, as Scott mentioned, it's a very unstable empire. The different ethnic groups were submitting to the Austrian government or the Hungarian government for now, but they weren't happy about it. And you were going to see that a lot of them are going to jockey for power toward the end of the war. All right. Shall we move on to the next power? Yes, this one is powerful. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. We're going to go northwest to the extreme corner of Europe. Some would argue it's not technically part of Europe. but Not after Brexit, people. Yeah, no kidding. Even before that, they, they were always kind of different. But this is Great Britain. Actually, the United Kingdom. The full name is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. They ruled over all of Ireland at the time. But Great Britain, or the UK, was a... I'll just call it Britain. They were a constitutional monarchy, essentially a democracy. You had King George V. He was the head of state, but he was very much a figurehead. He had very little power. The head of government was the real power, and he was the prime minister, just as today. He had control over the army and you know the, the, the levers of government. At the beginning of the war, the prime minister of Great Britain was a man named Herbert Asquith, and he's going to be replaced in the middle of the war by a fellow named David Lloyd George. And we'll have a lot to say about Lloyd George a little bit later. Britain's population was about 45 million, so slightly less than Austria-Hungary. The Industrial Revolution had begun in Great Britain. Great Britain had become known as the workshop of the world. And London was the financial capital of the world. So great industrial power, even in a relatively small nation. Britain had gained a world empire on which the sun never set, which may have included up to 20% of the inhabitable land mass of the world. So like one out of, one out of every five square miles was arguably ruled by Great Britain. The empire included Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Ireland, India. India was uh, the crown jewel of the empire. Much of the East Indies, a lot of Africa, parts of the Middle East. And uh, they had had in the past quite a bit of a rivalry with rivalry. I can't say it right with Russia. So Scott, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So this shows that people, a navy matters. This is an island that controls much of the world. Britain still has some weird, scattered uh, colonial possessions. If you go to the Caribbean, Turks and Caicos go down into the Southern Hemisphere, Falkland Islands, these little rump states. You think, oh, that's British. Well, um, an interesting factor in World War I is even though Britain tries to stay isolated from continental affairs, because of its colonies, it's running into friction with these other great powers. Uh, so, for example, in Central Asia, throughout the 19th century, it had butted heads with Russia. Uh, this made the two deeply suspicious of each other. And... Check this out, people. Part of the reason that America got Alaska is because Russia had that possession, couldn't really do anything with it. It couldn't exert any power there, but it wanted to put something between it and British Canada. So we figured, hey, we can't use this. Let's just sell it to America. And we discovered the gold there later. So yay us. Uh, 
But that's part of this uh, imperial competition game that is going to explode into World War I. Uh, yeah, so that's all I have to say about that. But, yep, people, navies matter. Indeed, they do. They had the most powerful navy in the world and had for quite some time. And in the words of the great podcaster Dan Carlin, who has a great World War I series, it was surrounded by a moat, <laughs> a great big <laughs> moat. And because of this, they were able to sometimes sit out of European conflicts when they wanted to. They didn't, they didn't necessarily get pulled into things because nobody was going to just march an army into their country. In fact, they hadn't been invaded, not really, since 1066 by a foreign power. Uh, and, and this enabled them to pursue a policy called splendid isolation from continental European affairs. And when the war breaks out, they're going to actually think pretty seriously about sitting it out. But uh, we'll see what happens with that. It was a conservative power. They wanted to preserve the status quo. They didn't want a lot of revolutions. They didn't want a lot of change. They wanted things to stay pretty much the way they were. Yeah, things were going well for them at the time, so why not? Why change? All right, so let's go south across the English Channel now to France. France was a republic. It's the only actual democratic republic of all of the powers at this time. Completely, you know, there's no king or anything. And it was led by a, a, a string of prime ministers. They went, through all, uh, they went through several of them. A lot of them just stayed for a few months. Uh, I'm not going to mention all of their names, but I'll mention the two most significant ones. One was Aristide Briand from October 1915 to March 1917. And then the most important one of all was Georges Clemenceau, the tiger. Rawr. He was from Tiger King. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, he started in November of 1917, pretty late in the war and lasted till well after the war. But he was he really was a piece of work. I and mean, he was a, a tiger, as we say in Texas. He, he was a real pistol. <laughs> yeah. um, France, if you know your European history, you know that it had once been the dominant superpower of Europe in the 17th, 18th and early 19th centuries. But it's. Of course, its defeat first in the Napoleonic Wars and then again in the Franco-Prussian War caused it to take second place, at least on the continent. It was relatively small in terms of population. It had only 40 million, less than Britain, less than Austria, way less than Russia, of course. And it had lost the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine as a result of the Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War was a situation where there was a dispute between France and Germany. France declared war. Germany marched an army across, occupied Paris, and gave the French a stunning defeat at a battle called Sedan. And as a result, France lost a good chunk of their territory, Alsace-Lorraine, which is part of Germany at the start of this war. The French and the Germans had been fighting over this land for 1,100 years. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, all I mean, the way back to Charlemagne's sons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, after his, Charlemagne's empires divided, Alsace and Lorraine, that's part of the dispute. So they don't forget. It's a not a huge rump of land, but oh, man, they want that bad. Yeah, it was a bitter pill for France to swallow to lose those. And they had a, a lot of people if, that wanted it back. And that's going to be one of the things they're going to try to do. France also had a colonial empire, not quite as extensive as Britain's, but pretty extensive. Quite a bit of territory in Africa, Southeast Asia other places. So that is France. All right. So let's get to 
the big dog. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about the new kid on the block, <laughs> and that is Germany. France, I mean, y'all know that France had been around for, we just got through talking about Charlemagne, who is, you know, in the late 700s, early 800s. Uh, we talked about Britain, which has been around ages and ages and ages. Germany as a unified state was practically brand new compared to these others. It was a constitutional monarchy led by Kaiser Wilhelm II. And again, this guy is a piece of work. <laughs> He's a character. We'll talk some more about him later, but he was an interesting fellow. The head of government, he's the head of state, Wilhelm was, and he did have power too. He wasn't, he was, power was kind of similar to the power of Franz Joseph in Austria-Hungary. He had the ability to give the army orders and hire and fire the head of the army and things like that. So he was pretty powerful. Uh, he wasn't absolute because they did have a Reichstag or a parliament and they had a chancellor who was the uh, basically the prime minister. His name, the prime minister or the chancellor was Theobald von Bethmann Holweg until July of 1917. And then a couple other guys who we'll not really talk much about. Germany as a unified kingdom or empire was established in 1871. So we're talking, it was in 1914, it was only 43 years old, younger than I am right now, much younger. <laughs> um, and it was established largely through the efforts of the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Now, prior to 1871, I should say Germany was divided into many small dukedoms and, and or duchies and uh, small kingdoms and principalities and you name it. Free cities, even. Free cities. Um, oh, it was a mess. It was, but Prussia was one of the more northern uh, kingdoms. It, it itself was relatively new. It had been around a couple of centuries, but it had grown in power, and it was very had a lot of military might. They really stressed military power and military excellence, and they were very good fighters. Prussia had grown. They had defeated Denmark and Austria and France in three wars in the 1860s and early 1870s. And through the work of Otto von Bismarck, they had gotten the other German kingdoms to join in and to unify with Prussia into the kingdom of Germany. The Second Reich, it's called the First Reich, I think was they were applied that to the Holy Roman Empire, right? Like under the autos. Right. Yeah. So this is the Second Reich or Empire. And the population was 65 million, much bigger than France, which, you know, I imagine France had a collective heart attack when they proclaimed the formation of the German Empire. Now, Bismarck, we won't talk much about Bismarck because he's dead and gone and off the scene, but his role in making Germany a great power cannot be understated. And when I was a, a sophomore in high school, I wrote a paper on Otto von Bismarck. I mean, in my colleagues i mean my fellow students are writing on you know much more normal things for high school <laughs> students but me the nerd who reads about european history wrote on bismarck germany was a great industrial power it had uh, one of the strongest if not the strongest economies in the world they inherited a strong and it wasn't well it wasn't greater than the american economy but it was number one in europe they inherited a strong militaristic tradition from prussia as I already touched on, they were trying to build a fleet. The Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II wanted to rival Great Britain. He, he ordered more ships to be built and the Navy to be increased. And you can imagine how this made Great Britain feel not happy at all. 
The creation of Germany, at, or also called the German Revolution, and its increase in military power shook up the balance of power. You know, the other kingdoms and empires took notice, and they got a little nervous. Who's this upstart? Who's this new kid that's, you know, kind of flexing his muscles and waving a sword around and, and, and this kind of thing? Saber rattling, um, especially under Wilhelm II. Bismarck was an extremely able diplomat, and he tried to assure the other European powers that Germany's intentions were only peaceful. This was in the 1870s and 80s. Wilhelm became the Kaiser in 1888, and he dismissed Bismarck two years later. He wanted to be his own uh, empire builder and, and nation builder. He, he didn't want Bismarck. He didn't agree with Bismarck on a lot of things. He, wa- he was more bellicose. He wanted a more aggressive um, assertive foreign policy than Bismarck had. Wilhelm II was a grandson of Queen Victoria, like many of the other crowned heads of Europe. Victoria, as we know, she ruled for many, many years, over 60 years, and had a lot of kids and a lot of grandkids. Uh, George V was a grandchild of Queen Victoria. Uh, So, and anyway... Wilhelm used very aggressive militaristic language, and he said, Germany deserves its place in the sun. And what does that mean, Scott? Well, we're going to find out. Um, And one other thing, too, we'll get back to Wilhelm in the next episode, but he's related to a lot of people in this conflict. So sometimes you look at the royal class of Europe and wonder, how inbred is it there? I mean, are people all third cousins, fifth cousins, sometimes first cousins? There's a lot of genetic material swapping around, and sometimes it results in the Habsburg jaw. So um, Yeah, insanity sometimes. One could say. I mean, you know, someone should write a book about that. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The comment there that Germany deserves its place in the sun. Germany had lost out on the great game of colonialism that France, Britain, and other European powers were able to get involved in in previous centuries because, like James explained, they weren't consolidated. 
But what's interesting is that there were pockets of ethnic Germans all over Central and Eastern Europe. There are cities in Poland that were built by ethnic Germans. There are some in Russia. You read Dostoevsky novels and Brothers Karamazov. There's a German character there. So there's already a sense that there's this pan-Germanism. It just needs to be consolidated even more. Kaiser Wilhelm, we'll look at this more in the next episode, but he has visions of stretching into the Middle East and muscling out Britain. Germany helps build railroad lines in the Middle East. It is a uh, patron of the industrial buildup over there. Wilhelm even visits Damascus in the late 1800s. He visits the tomb of Saladin, the famous uh, Muslim hero of the Third Crusade who battled with King Richard, and laid a uh, wreath at the tomb of Saladin that said, from one great conqueror to another. So not being very subtle there. And he has huge vision for the future of Germany. Um, But is everything peaceful at home, James, with Germany? Are they just completely peaceful and looking outward for some conflict and rough and tumble? It is most definitely not. Germany was, as we saw, saw, had a very strong uh, economy. It had a great civilization. It had many of the great composers, uh, authors, painters, and so on had been Germans. But beneath the surface, there was a lot of political and social turmoil. It had a significant socialist movement. I mean, if you think about it, Karl Marx was a German, right, before he was kicked out. So, And there, were, there was just a lot of pessimism about the future and even a feeling of a crisis that prevailed throughout the country. And that's something that is going to rear its ugly head during the war a few times, as we will see. All right, now I'm going to... Uh, So those are the five great powers, okay? Once again, Russia, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, also called the dual monarchy, the British Empire, France, technically not an empire, it's a republic, but of course they had colonies, and and the new German Empire. Now we're going to look at two other nations or or empires that uh, wanted to be great powers. They weren't quite there. And I'm going to turn the mic over to Scott here. We're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire, another ancient centuries-old empire. And s- since Scott uh, is an ex- truly is an expert and a scholar in this field, this was his main area of concentration in his studies. I'm going to let Scott take it from here, and then I'll take it back when we get to Italy. Ottoman Empire? Why would you name an empire after a footstool? That's ridiculous, man. Yeah, I know. I thought at first it was the Onomatopoeian Empire. You know, they just go bang, bang, shoot, shoot. All right, anyway, sorry, that was bad. (laughs) Uh, Interesting story for its name, but you know what? I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to get hung up on these details. So to make a very, very long story short, the Ottoman Empire, while other powers in Europe are growing, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Many of them are growing at the expense of the Ottoman Empire that's shrinking. The Ottoman Empire dates back to 1300. It's continually ruled by one family, the House of Osman, but it hits its high water mark around the 1500s and 1600s when it goes all the way into Central Europe, up to the Ukraine, far into the Balkans, um, the entire Arabian Peninsula, North Africa. Due to a a number of reasons, I won't even get into it. I'll get uh, sidetracked. It loses power. It's still ruled by sultans, which sounds odd to people who haven't looked at the Ottoman Empire. It sounds like Arabian Nights. Yes, there were sultans. Yes, they were polygamous. Yes, they still had eunuchs uh, in a palace. Um, but at the time, sultans are really completely impotent in power and figureheads. Uh, the last strong sultan was Abdul Hamid II, who ruled until 1909. 
After that, there's two other sultans, Mehmet V and then uh, Mehmet VI, the last sultan. But at this time in World War I, there's a triumvirate of the, it's called the Three Pashas, Mehmet Talat, Enver, and Ahmet Jamal. Uh, and they had power after a 1913 coup d'etat. Now, the Ottoman Empire does not have the politician of these, or the population of these other empires. It only has 18.5 million people. Other Europeans thought that it was destined for destruction and death. It was called the sick man of Europe because compared to these other empires, it had been declining in power for centuries. And other European nations were looking upon it with designs to carve it up. And they formally made plans for this in 1916 to partition it into colonies the way that Africa and much of Asia had already been. And Europe was already getting involved in Ottoman affairs. Uh, It had given loans to the Ottoman government. It was mostly bankrupt. Britain was basically controlling its domestic politics. And many of the European powers claimed patronage over the large Christian groups in the empire. Um, Yes, the Ottoman Empire was Muslim control, but it had huge Christian and Jewish populations. So the French considered themselves the patrons of the Catholic population. And if you were a Catholic who had a problem, you'd go to the French embassy in the Ottoman Empire. The British considered themselves the patrons of the Protestants, and the Russians considered themselves the patrons of the Eastern Orthodox uh, that were in the empire as well. Um, But as I mentioned earlier about Wilhelm building up rail lines through the Middle East, this led to friendly relations with Germany. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm's government invested there in the Middle East, in the railroad, in much of its industrial technology, its military aid. Um, Even today, a lot of terms for factories and basic technology come directly from German because of its influence in Turkey. So the Ottoman Empire, um, it had attempted reform. It had a parliament for a while. It had tried to give people citizenship. Um, It was largely playing catch up when it came to industrial development, when it came to educational levels, when it came to all sorts of things with Europe. So trying to reform but still behind if we look at things in terms of population, in terms of manpower, in terms of warfighting capability. So that's why it's not one of the five great powers. Uh, but let's look at some of the other junior members here. So, James, what's going on with Italy? All right. So this is nation number seven. At least this is the seventh of the uh, powers in the game diplomacy that we talked about at the very beginning. Italy, of course, you know, you had had Italian people for hundreds of years and thousands of years. And perhaps if you want to say the Romans are Italians, you know, you can make that argument. Why not? But as a unified nation, Italy was almost as young as Germany. It was unified in 1860, but it had ambitions to be a great power. Many people dreamed of having a new Roman Empire, but it was pretty small population wise. It had about 36 million people and it was a parliamentary monarchy. We're not going to say a ton about Italy. Italy is not going to be in the forefront of our series. There was quite a bit of fighting in Italy, northern Italy, but we won't talk about it too much just for the sake of time. Now, I want to move on to a power that nobody would have considered a great power. Nobody, uh, not even themselves. They wanted to be, (laughs) but maybe in their own minds, but a very important power nonetheless. And it's a country that's very near and dear to my heart. And that is Serbia. We've already touched upon Serbia a little bit early, but let's flesh them out a little bit. The Serb people had come to Europe a long time ago, back in the uh, 600s or so, if I remember correctly. And they'd been around, they'd had a medieval empire, which was small, but 
off and on, long last, fairly long lasting until they were finally conquered by the Ottomans. They had gained some autonomy from the Ottomans in the early 1800s, but they were still technically part of the Ottoman Empire. They, that was kind of a pattern, right, Scott? People would, nation groups would be granted autonomy and gradually more and more, and then eventually they would split off become independent. The Ottomans couldn't do much about it. And they became independent in 1878. Their population was very small, only 4.5 million. They were a parliamentary monarchy. They had been ruled alternatively by two dynasties, the Karadjordjevic dynasty and the Obrenovic dynasty, both of which uh, they despised each other. They were like the Hatfields and McCoys and they would (laughs) You know, one would rule for a while and then they'd be assassinated and the other would rule. And so they weren't a terribly unified people. In fact, the king, Alexander, who was from the Obrenovich dynasty, he was assassinated in 1903 by the other faction who took power. They wanted to absorb parts of Bosnia, which was ruled by Austria-Hungary, as we've already touched upon, because there was a significant Serb minority in Bosnia. And I'll have to say on a personal note, those are some people that I lived among and worked with for several years. I lived, I never actually lived in Serbia. I've been to Belgrade, but I lived in Bosnia for about three and a half years. And about half of that time, or a little less than half, was spent in Serbian or Serb-controlled parts, Orthodox parts of Bosnia. And I learned the language. Scott's lived in Turkey. Scott knows the Turkish language. He's studied there. He's spent a lot of time with Turkish people. I'm the same way with Serbia, although I didn't get a PhD. I'm too lazy. <laughs> but but, it, but I, It's not very useful if it makes you feel any better. Well, thank you. I feel much better now. But I got an uh, honorary PhD in Serbian culture and Bosnian Serb culture, which is slightly different from Serbian Serbs, but we won't go into that. And I was fluent in the language for a while. I, I'm very, very rusty now. But anyway, the Serbs... So, you know, I know these people, I've talked to the people, uh, and I, I know the history pretty well, but we won't go into too much detail about Serbia, and except for their direct re- relevance to the war. Now, Serbia had a special relationship with Russia. As we mentioned, the Russians saw themselves as the protectors of the Slavic peoples of Europe. They had recently defeated the Ottoman Empire, along with several other Balkan states, and then Bulgaria gaining territory. And that's Serbia. Scott's going to close this out now. Well, I think what I'd like to do is just note that going off of what James said, where he was among ethnic Serbians in Bosnia, do I have that correct? Well, yeah, close. They, the people group, they call themselves Serbs. Mm-hmm. Serbian is like the the adjective for uh, the language or the army or you know the government, things like that. They they call themselves Serbs. Not Serbians, but it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing, really. But that's a really good point because it's an ethnic group that still has an affinity toward another people, even though they're not in that nation-state boundary. This is something for us as Americans it's hard to understand because we think, oh, I was born in America. That automatically makes me American. That's a very new world way of thinking. We're going to be looking at an old world way of thinking, and what James encountered there is something that's as a result of World War I, of people who are, in one sense, behind a national boundary when maybe their kin would be in another place. I lived in Hungary for two years, and there are many ethnic Hungarians that are in neighboring Romania, some in Ukraine, some in Slovakia to their north, some in Slovenia. 
And uh, there was a term I learned in Central Europe I didn't know in America, but it has a lot of currency in Europe, and that's called irredentism. It means that you have designs to push back a boundary, national boundary, after it's been pushed forward. And I've seen maps in Hungary of so-called greater Hungary of reclaiming these lands where Hungarians mostly live in this part of Romania, but one day it could be added back onto Hungary. And no one really believes that'll happen, but it's more of just, I, I guess, wishful thinking, if you want to look at it that way. That was a big philosophy in, in, among many Bosnian Serbs and just Serbs, Serbian Serbs too back in the 1990s. The idea that anywhere there's a Serb living, that's Serbia. Regardless of who calls themselves the ruler at the <laughs> present time, we're going to fix that. And, and, and that was a big issue going into World War I, absolutely. And that doesn't even say anything about the Middle East, where many of the national boundary lines are drawn after World War I. So you have a nation, but these people have no historical connection to one another. There could be a few different ethnic groups. Being a Lebanese person or Jordanian doesn't mean anything. They don't have that type of connection to each other. But suddenly find that they're supposed to create a nation with these other people, but then they find their kin network might have been on the other side of that dividing line of this national boundary that fell down. A lot of this is the result of World War I. So World War I has consequences that are still being felt today. There are people who still do not like the outcome of World War I. And maybe in one sense, it's not completely over. So this war has very far reaching effects. This is just a couple of personal anecdotes that James and I had of going to a place. So in the third decade of the 21st century, World War I is still being felt. All right. Well, that's an overview. Uh, anything else you want to touch on, James, before we close out this pilot episode? No, I think we've set the stage pretty well. And we're going to see right. what happens when these different people groups start coming into conflict with each other. <laughs> All right. Next episode, we'll see you there. And we are going to descend into war. And we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there. Thanks for listening to the Key Battles of World War I podcast. To get detailed notes of each battle, along with maps and other resources, go to Key Battles of WW1, that's one the numeral, dot com. Until next time, remember to keep your O3 Springfield clean, avoid trench foot, and show the Hun that you're a son of a gun. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.